Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The book is Gale vs. Canada, Challenging Sex Discrimination in the Indian Act. And it's authored by a acclaimed Indigenous author and Anishinaabe, Dr. Lynn Gale. She joins us on the program. Dr. Gale, thank you very much. And how are you today? Fine. Thank you, Roy, for having me. It's great to talk to you. Uh, I've been reading about your case more than 30 years in Canada's court system, which is based on what you were trying to establish, really borders on insanity that they took this long to, to come to a logical conclusion. But you applied for Indian status in 1994 and were denied based on a regulation adopted in the Act in 1985, if I understand correctly. Can you just give us the fundamentals of, of what your case was about? Sure. So actually, this this um, issue predates me. It goes back to my great-grandmother who was told um, that she became a white person. She was told that in 1985, or 1945, after she, she married a man who was um, uh, only indigenous through, only, I put that in quotes, who was indigenous through his mother line. Her, her father was... Uh, Oh, that just got completely confusing. Sorry about that. So my my great-grandmother was told that she became a white woman in 1985 because of um, who her father married and who her mother married. And um, when the Indian Act was um, amended in 1985 and, and was amended to bring it in line with the Charter to eliminate sex discrimination in the Indian Act. In actual fact, what happened was uh, Canada created new forms of sex discrimination. One of them was the issue of unknown and unstated paternity. So prior to 1985, there were provisions that protected children of unknown and unstated paternity. They would be Indian like their mother. But in 1985, the Indian Act became silent on the issue, and, and I would argue and think that that was a very intentional and strategic act on the part of Canada. So you first applied for Indian status in 1994, and you were denied due to this unknown identity of the, your paternal grandfather, even though you can trace your Indigenous heritage for five generations. That doesn't even begin to make sense. Yes, that's that's exactly what happened. Um, because I don't know who my unknown... Uh, I have an unknown grandfather on my father's side, and they, at the level of practice, assumed he was a white person. And as a result of that, my grandmother, when she, when she was reinstated with Indian status, it was a lesser form of Indian status, known as 6-2, and that meant she, she couldn't pass it on to my father, and, she couldn't, and my father couldn't pass it on to me, so we had to do some further work and investigation, But in, and eventually I did have my father... Um, registered as a status Indian, but then he couldn't pass it on to me because of this unknown uh, father in his limit, in his lineage. It, it just, it just does not even begin to make sense. So here you can trace your heritage, your indigenous heritage, five generations, but because of your grandfather's um, uh, heritage not being known, uh, as I understand it, they, they, they disregarded that you could trace your heritage for five generations. That was a 1985 regulation, which was supposed to address the issue of gender-based discrimination. Did anything but that. That's right. They, they, as I said, in 1985, they actually reinvented new forms of sex discrimination, and the yeah. issue of unknown and unstated paternity was one of them. And I knew that that, that was... Um, 
uh, a violation of Section 15 of the Charter. At least I felt it was a violation of Section 15 of the Charter that says that, um, you know, sex discrimination is just not acceptable. And so um, I eventually pursued that court case um, and traveled through the court. And eventually, I lost at the superior court level, and it was a really pitiful loss. And then um, I won at the uh, Court of Appeal. And so, I put, that, I put that in quotations, I won. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, the judges said that it was unreasonable to, uh, to, uh, for, for the other court, the lower court, to have, uh, have decided the way it is. What was it like for you, personally, to engage in a three-decades battle in the courts of Canada and you were fighting not just one, but you were fighting successive and obstinate federal governments. What was that like for you? Um, it was miserable. <laughs> it was very difficult. So, I, you know, again, I started doing the research in my 20s, and the book is just out now, and I'm, you know, 59. So it, it was a lifelong challenge, and... and um, I ended up, in the end, getting a PhD, and the case was still ongoing. And so after I finished my doctoral work, I decided I had to put more effort into moving the case forward because I was the only constant in, in Gale versus Canada. The lawyers at Aboriginal Legal Services had changed several times, and I realized I had to, to, to work harder at it. Um, you know, moving from my 20s and to 30s and 40s, I began to learn a lot more about Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous issues, and right. and issues of identity. And so my identity as an Algonquin person was quite um, strong, you know, as I aged, of course. But I really had to pursue the case. I had to go forward with it regardless, because there were many young mothers who have been denied, uh, their babies were being denied Indian status registration because of issues of rape and, and men who wouldn't sign the birth certificate and incest and um, abuse. Some, some mothers don't want to put their father's signatures on the birth certificate. So, And a lot of times these are very young women, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old women, some of these young girls, rather, they don't even have the, they didn't even have the legal right to have sex. And then Indian Affairs was um, making a decision about the uh, about the babies. The child. Yeah, and about and the babies. So, yeah, so I felt like I had to move forward uh, yeah. with it. Did it, I mean it must have just well, when you were thinking when you think about this and I, I just listening to what you just said. We're talking about 13, 14, 15, in some cases, 16, 17-year-old kids, and they, and they have children. Sometimes it's uh, consensual, sometimes it's, and it's not legal, uh, under the age of 16, but, um, and, and sometimes it isn't, and the, and the mothers don't want to or can't identify who the father is. And so the government steps in and says, well, in that instance, we're not going to, we're not going to grant uh, Indian status to the child. You have to ask yourself, why was the government doing that? What's in it for successive governments to make decisions like this? Yeah, so I, um, I ha that's a really important question. I would say it's the control of the of the eastern doorway, control of women's bodies. Um, but I would also say that it has to do with issues of Indian status registration. Means that you're entitled to your treaty rights, um, such as education and health care. And Canada um, continues to be motivated to eliminate status Indians. Um, and what they were doing is they were targeting women and young mothers in that process. Just before we uh, go back to Dr. Gill, I just want to read you something. This is what she was up against. All right? This is what Dr. Gill was up against. 
Um, prior to the 1985 update to the Indian Act, children of unstated and unknown fathers were status Indians like their mothers. However, Bill C-31 became silent on the issue of unknown and unstate paternity. This silent, or gap, was then filled by an internal Indigenous and Northern Affairs Canada policy of assuming non-status paternity. This policy denied thousands of Indigenous people their status rights, but has also made it impossible to regain status for those who seek it where paternity cannot be officially proven. That is what Gale versus Canada sought to address and did address, and the Appeals Court of Ontario ruled that the lower court's ruling was unacceptable, just didn't make any sense. Uh, I admire I admire your patience and your willingness to, to fight, Dr. Gale. Would you share with us, um, if I can just broad basis a little more. Would you share your thoughts on the issues being addressed in this country at this time over indigenous issues, indigenous nationhood, treaty rights, reconciliation? Uh, what's your sense of what's going on? Oh, I think there's, it's a lot of rhetoric, a lot of obfuscating rhetoric. Um, we certainly are in an era of nation-to-nation building or nation to, respect for nation-to-nation, or nor are we in an era of reconciliation. Um, I think that uh, there's just in terms of looking at the Indian Act, there's still a lot of issues with with discrimination in the Indian Act, um, such as enfranchisement. A lot of people who were enfranchised have not been um, reinstated as Indians. Uh, I don't know why somebody has to go to court for for 30 years to to um, make a point about that issue. Um, in terms of also Gale versus Canada, the core issue of Gale versus Canada was not addressed because the Court of Appeal rested their decision on circumstantial evidence. We we were moving forward as a charter challenge, and they refused to address it as a charter challenge. They they relied on administrative law, and they narrowed the remedy to say that uh, I had some circumstantial evidence, and so based on that, uh, they they could conclude that I was an Indian. Well, that did it. That did not resolve the issue of unknown and unstated paternity, where there's many um, children who don't know who their fathers are because of issues of rape and, and, and power. So they left that unresolved. Um, so then, may, may I just interrupt, just ask you this, then has your victory in court, victory in quotes here, uh, helped Indigenous women nationally or not so much? Is it, is it, is it just uh, limited to you? Um, well, um, earlier you, at, the, at the Superior Court level, I lost, and then we went to the Court of Appeal, right. and the Court of Appeal uh, ruled based using administrative law versus charter law, and they said that because I had circumstantial evidence, they could determine that my father's father was an Indian. So the, what that means is it's actually both. It, it, it is a victory that goes beyond me. It means that... Um, INAC can no longer unilaterally assume that an unknown uh, father is is uh, not an Indian person. They now have to rely on circumstantial evidence around the birth. But in situations where there is no circumstantial evidence, such as rape, um, uh, that that is left unresolved. So it, it does certainly have a national effect on, on, on many children, uh, but it didn't resolve the issue more broadly, because that's what the courts are doing. They're, they're narrowing the remedies um, as much as they can. That's what they're doing. So the Indian Act itself, what do you think of it? Is it, I mean, what do you think of the Indian Act as it is, as it exists today, as it applies to you, they've said you are now 
Now, the court has ruled that you are Indian, which you knew long before you went to court. Uh, but but they've now said you are. What what do you think of the Indian Act as it stands today? Um, well, certainly I can see the motivation to get out of the Indian Act and move away from it. So my concern was that as Canada wants to move away from the Indian Act, they had no right or no responsibility to target mothers and children. And so, again, I certainly understand why they want to move away from it, but um, they don't need to target the most vulnerable in that process. Um, so... For me, um, giving me getting Indian status registration meant that I could now I could now be a band member and I could be more um, involved in the Algonquin land claim and self government process. For example, um, also my medicine is is covered, so it does serve me in some way. Although I do know we're in the process of getting out of it, and that's probably a good thing. Uh, unfortunately, the process that Canada is relying on to get out of the Indian Act, um, known as, uh, for example, the Comprehensive Land Claim Process, it's a very pitiful process. It's, it's, we're working with policies that have been unilaterally constructed, and, and they, they don't really serve Indigenous people. So um, if they want to get out of the Indian Act, uh, then they might want to move into a process of equally sharing the land and resources with Indigenous people versus continuing to, to force us to extinguish our land and resources. Do you, what do you see then, uh, final question for you, what do you see as the future for Indigenous peoples, non-Indigenous peoples within Canada? I don't know. Um, I, um, I think that Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people need to, well, mostly non-Indigenous people need to understand that we all need clean land, air, and water, and that's what's really important clean land, air, and water, and Indigenous people are entitled to it, as, 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 as are all Canadian citizens. But Canada is, is not protecting our water or our land. Well, I will say, uh, reading the premise about your book, and then as I started to read more and understand more about your 34-year fight with successive Canadian governments regarding uh, unknown and unstated paternity, and them denying you Indian status when you can trace your heritage immediately five generations just shows how cumbersome and uh, thoughtless the process has become when bureaucracy becomes engaged as it has it's people who suffer if you want to hear more subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts Spotify Stitcher or wherever you find your favorites and if you like what you hear leave us a review and tell a friend I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.